Lord Jesus, what an awesome God you are. I need you. Without any hesitation, without any doubt, and without any apology, I need you, Holy Spirit. And we invite you to come into this place to breathe on us. We need your life. We need your power. And we need your transformation. We ask tonight specifically, my Father, that we do not leave this place the same way that we came in. We ask intentionally that chains be broken from off of lives tonight. Any person that came in here bowed under the oppression of the enemy, I ask that you break those chains and set your son, set your daughter free tonight. I ask that any that came into this house tonight with sickness, that they be healed in Jesus' name. That any son or any daughter who walked into this room with burdens, financial, emotional, family, relational, you remind them that they can cast their cares onto you because you really do care about us. So come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Let us leave tonight as transformed men and women for the excellency of the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, every year, much like you, I start out by asking the Lord a couple of questions. I want to know what book in the Word do you want me to focus on this year? I ask what, if any, word you want to be made alive over my life this year? And is there anything specific or intentional that you want to work on in my life that I can cooperate with you on this year? I did not like his answers. <laughs> because the book that he dropped in my heart is the book of Job. The word that he dropped in my heart was trust plus obedience equals faith. And the particular passage that he dropped in my heart was give me a mountain. All of those are challenging. None of them are comforting or comfortable, I should say. So tonight, because misery loves company, I want to start a series on the book of Job with you guys. So are you ready? Okay. As far as I know at this point, anytime I speak on a Wednesday night, for the next little bit, I will be speaking from the book of Job. And I'm pretty certain that I won't exhaust the book before the year is out. In the book of Job, the first chapter, if you want to turn there with me, there was a man. What a way to start a story. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the east. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each other on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, where there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them, and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's as far as I want to go tonight. Let's look at the background of the book of Job. This book was written probably during an era that we refer to as the patriarchal period. The patriarchal period is going to be the time frame when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. It's referred to as the patriarchal period because the Mosaic law had not yet been established and put into place. We can assume that this is during the patriarchal period based on a number of facts. One, we have no idea where the land of us is. And so we know that it's a very ancient land, one that probably predates or is somewhere near the time of Abraham himself. We also can assume that this is from the approximate time of Abraham or the patriarchal period because Job is not a priest, nor does he mention a priest, and yet he is making sacrifice on behalf of his family, which is a patriarchal activity. Because back in the day of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and probably Job, there were, there were no established priests, no established priesthood. So the father or the head of a tribe or a clan would make offerings and sacrifices sacrifices on behalf of his children and his family unto the Lord and therefore function not just as the father or the chief of the clan but also basically as the priest of his family. So it was written during this patriarchal period which makes the book of Job a very old book. Some Old Testament scholars will even go so far as to say and I would actually agree with them that Job is probably as far as actually dating a book is probably one of the earliest books that we have. 
Now, there's a lot of argument about whether the book of Job is historical or whether it's a story that has a moral meaning. I personally am persuaded that it is an historical event, but proving the historicity of Job is not my goal. We would all be bored to tears by the time I was finished with that one. The book of Job was probably written during the patriarchal period, making it a very old book. And because of the time frame in which it was written, we can make a couple of other assumptions about the book, and the book actually bears this out. Another assumption that we can make is that the people for whom this book was originally written and the book of whom, these, of whom it was originally written about, Job and his family, they had no concept of Satan. The concept of Satan did not appear in Hebrew thought until several thousand years later during the Babylonian captivity. They had a concept of extreme sovereignty. They believed that everything that happened happened by the will of God and by the hand of God. They didn't understand a demonic realm like we do today. That concept didn't really occur until after Israel came out of the Babylonian captivity. So Job is going to live and die and never have any understanding of what we have an understanding of. He's never going to know that this conversation took place between God and Satan. He's never going to know that God gave Satan permission and that Satan was under the control of God during the whole time. He's going to be completely unaware of this his entire lifetime. So when you read the book of Job, you're going to, as you look through these passages, you're going to see that Job blamed God, or I'm not going to say blamed as in accused, but Job looked to God as being ultimately responsible for all the events that took place in his life. Can I say to you, I still believe in the sovereignty of God. There is, even within the conservative evangelical churches of the United States of America tonight, there are movements going on even within Pentecostal churches questioning or wanting to diminish the sovereignty of God. There's actually a theology that's been propagated by a number of people called open theism. Actually, it was born out of Pentecostal academia, and that's just another whole story by itself. But open theism is a belief that God has purposely laid aside his sovereignty and he is as surprised as we are by the events of our life. I have to be completely honest with you. I have read their work. I've listened to their lecture. Much learning has made them nuts. God is sovereign. My days from beginning to end are numbered by him and there is nothing that happens in my life that takes him by surprise takes me by surprise, may take you by surprise, but God is not surprised. He is seated on his throne and he knows all about it. I take great comfort in knowing that when things fall apart in my life, he has it all right here. And that is my sovereign God, immovable, unchangeable, and nothing happens in my life unless he knows about it. Not only is there no concept of Satan or the demonic during Job's lifetime, there's also no real well-developed concept of life after death. So, and I'm telling you this because you're going to see that Job's suffering put him in a position to where he had to step beyond what he knew and step into a place where he could not see, step into a place where he had never been before, and think beyond the box that he had been in. There is nothing like suffering 
to move you from where you are into the next place. There is nothing like God shaking up your circumstances and your situations to get you to move from where you are to move on to the next place. If you're like me, when you get comfortable, you don't want to move. Have you ever been comfortable and warm and still in your big old easy chair and you're really thirsty and you know you want something to drink? Or God help us, you want to go to the bathroom and, and you're just so comfortable and so warm and everything is so perfect that you just don't want to move. And that's when you go, Stuart, <laughs> honey, bring me a soda. <laughs> There's something within our nature we love to be comfortable And once we get comfortable, we do not want to move from that place of comfort or that zone of comfort. But God is not interested in our comfort. And he's not interested in being convenient. He's concerned about our commitment. He's concerned about our growth and our maturity. He's concerned about our personal holiness. He's concerned about us fulfilling the destiny and call that he has placed upon our lives. Now, we've read the first entire chapter of the book of Job. The first thing that we learn in verse 1, we learn about who Job is. This is how he's described. He's blameless. The Hebrew word for blameless is tov. T-A-W-B would be the alliteration. This word is only used 13 times in all the Old Testament. And seven of those 13 times are found here in the book of Job. He is blameless. What does that mean to be blameless, to be tov? To be tov is to be complete to be whole, to be gentle. Now, what is the connection between being whole and being complete and being gentle? Because I don't know a lot of gentle people. Sometimes I think I'm married to the only gentle person on the planet. Because honestly, don't tell him I said so or anything like that. But when I was reading through here today, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all these terms describe my husband. (laughs) That's a really good thing. But to be whole, to be complete, to be gentle. Another person that's referred to as being Tob is Jacob. In Genesis chapter uh, 25, verse 27, it says that Jacob was blameless. He was a man of the tents. Now, Jacob had a brother named Esau. Esau is referred to as a man of the fields, and God hated him. And Jacob is a man of the tents, blameless, and God loved him. Now, when we just read through Genesis 25, we miss a lot of implications there because we are not Hebrew. But if you read this from the Hebrew, and then you have a little bit of of background on what's going on here, what you find out is that to be a man of the fields means more than just he tilled the land. To be a man of the fields is an indication that Esau went up and down the countryside and he took what he wanted with no regard of anyone else. That he was a man that gave into his impulses and his desires. He was an immediate gratifier, even when immediate gratification meant that he took what did not belong to him. Even when immediate gratification meant that he violated other people, that he pillaged and stole and even raped. Because to be a man of the fields carried all those implications with it. Esau... And his character bears out in his selling of his birthright. Esau was a man who wanted it and wanted it right now. And whatever he wanted in that moment, whatever he felt in that moment, dictated and ruled his life. And God hated him. 
hated the kind of man he had become, hated the characteristics that he displayed. But Jacob, on the other hand, was a man of the tents. And to be a man or woman of the tents meant that you were a man or woman who had given themselves to discipline and to learning. A man or a woman who had given themselves to the training of their mind and to the ruling and reigning in of their own emotions and desires. Men and women who knew how to delay gratification until a moment when it pleased God and met the requirements and restrictions that God placed upon it. Do you understand that we have reared a generation of men and women who are of the fields and not of the tents? Do you realize that we have men and women, even within the church, that must satisfy and satiate their most base desires and they will go down saying, I had a right. I don't have to restrain myself. I want to get stoned, so I'm going to go get stoned. I want to have sex and it doesn't matter that I'm married or not married and that it is or isn't my husband. I want it and I want it right now and I will have it and I have a right to it. These are people in the church with this kind of attitude unrestrained, no discipline, taking what they want, when they want it, and justifying it, rationalizing every step of the way. And we even do this spiritually. If God doesn't give us what we want when we think we have to have it, then we turn our backs on him and go walk in our own ways. And we feel justified in it because he didn't give us what we thought we had to have in that moment. Whereas God is looking for men and women of the tents. Men and women who give themselves to the discipline of his spirit. Men and women who have become students of his word and of his ways. Men and women who will say, I know God has that for me, but not now. And I'll wait for it. I won't do that which dishonors him. I will not do that which defiles his name. I will not do that which is not holy, and I will restrain myself before the Lord and before man and wait until the time appointed by the Father. God is looking for men and women who are blameless, who are walking upright, whole, complete, and gentle. Because a person who is whole and complete, they don't have to take what doesn't belong to them. I find that most people who consistently and perpetually sin are men and women who have unmet needs in their life and are filled with insecurities and the sin satiates or numbs their need for just a moment. Only for them to wake up and find that that need comes back louder than ever before. He was a man who was blameless, upright, complete, whole, a man who was gentle, a man who was restrained, and a man who had given himself to the discipline of God's spirit. I tell you, no one likes discipline. Even the most disciplined person on the planet, no one likes discipline. But when discipline has its work in our lives, we will find ourselves bearing the fruit of righteousness. When discipline and restraint has its, has its perfect work in our lives, we'll find ourselves becoming candidates for things that only God can give to us and then recipients of that. I know that there are young people who think, oh, I've got to go and experience everything that life has to offer because I'm only going to be young for a moment and I've got to experience it all right now. No, you don't. That is a thought that is not new. It's as old as time itself. God is calling us to be men and women disciplined by his spirit and under the restraint of his holiness. 
He has not called us to be a generation nor a people of Esau, but to be a generation and a people of the tents, men and women who are disciplined and students of his word. The second term that we are given with regard to Job, oh, let me say this about the blameless, those who are whole and complete and gentle. It says in Psalm 37 and in uh, Psalm 64 that people who are gentle, complete, and whole, the bloodthirsty hate them. Have you ever had people hate you and you just don't know why? Have you ever gone into a situation and people just want to rip you to shreds and tear you down and do anything they can to destroy you? Don't take it personal. Celebrate. Go home and rejoice and be exceedingly glad because God has found you blameless. He has found you a man or a woman, gentle, whole, and complete. In Song of Solomon, both the Shulamite and her beloved describe each other as whole, complete, and blameless. All right, the second word that's used to describe Job is upright, and that word is yasher, and it means straight, like a straight road. It means a path that has no turns, twists, or curves in it. Job is a straight man, not just referring to his sexual preference, from our, from our cultural perspective, but he's straight, meaning that he is who he appears to be. There aren't twists and turns and curves in this man. There aren't things that are hidden, and you don't start going down the path and all of a sudden realize that what you thought you were on is taking you somewhere else. What you see is what you get. He is an upright, authentic. I love that word, authentic. He is an authentic man. He is who he appears to be. There are no twists, no turns, and no curves in this man. He is a straight path. You can't be a straight path if you're not walking a straight path. If your life and choices and decisions are all over the place, your path will be all over the place. Your path is only as straight as your choices and decisions are. And let me tell you, you may think that no one's watching you, but they are. If you have children or grandchildren, don't expect them to walk in a way that you're not. Don't expect them to do as you say, because they're going to do as you live. They, the message of the way you live your life will always speak much louder than the message of your mouth. And the most powerful message of all is the one that comes out of your mouth and has walked with your feet. Because when you say what you live and live what you say, it carries a double witness and a double impact. And I tell you, we have young people that are looking for older men and women. When I say older, anybody over 20. They're looking for anyone. <laughs> they're looking for anyone that's walking in a way that they can imitate. Paul told Timothy, imitate me. Do what I do because I'm going to be imitating Christ. And if you imitate me and I'm imitating him, we're all in good shape. Can you honestly, before the Lord, are you able to turn to people that are younger than you and say, imitate me? Do what I do? Say what I say? Think like I think? Live like I live? Our young people are looking for men and women that they can imitate. Men and women who are saying, come, walk alongside of me and do what I do. See what I do. Live like I live. Think like I think. Read and study scripture the way that I do. Come and imitate me. And I know those are very lofty ideals, but church, those are ideals that God wants us to attain to. Those are ideas that he wants us to embrace and to live out in our lives. So Job is blameless. Job is upright. Job fears God.
I don't care what anyone says, we are all afraid of something. For me, I am afraid of snakes. By my own confession, I don't care. There is no such thing as a good snake. They are all bad snakes. And if I see one, I don't care. If you're telling me it's a safe snake, I'm going to like find a chair and jump on it really fast. But beyond those kinds of fears, we must be a people that fears and reveres God. We're going to fear God or we're going to fear man. And whoever we fear, that's who is going to be in control of our life. If you fear God, then God will be in control of your life. If you fear people, then the opinions and attitudes of people, that's what's going to control your life. And haven't we been controlled by people long enough? Haven't we been controlled by the opinions and the attitudes of other people long enough? I want to break so free of the fear of man that I can honestly, authentically say, I fear God period. Job is a man who has this reverential fear and awe and respect of God. We know from the book of Proverbs that to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. That to fear God is to begin to understand who he is and to acknowledge his ways and to walk and live his ways out in your life. That, the, that to fear God is the beginning of wisdom. To fear God is also to want to turn away from that which defiles and diminishes God and does not bring glory and honor to his name. Job is blameless. Job is upright. Job fears God. Now look at this. This is, I love this. He turns away from evil. That word is sur. It means to turn off. It means that, like, I would go to the back of that wall and turn these lights off. When evil comes toward him, he just turns it off. When evil tries to penetrate his thinking, he just turns it off. When evil comes toward him, he does not engage it. How many times have we gotten into so much trouble because we tried to engage evil? It might look like this. I know I used to be an alcoholic, but I'm delivered. And you know what? I'm going to go into this bar to prove it. I, I, I used to be addicted to cocaine, but God's delivered me. And, and to prove it, I'm going to go hang out with these people that I know will be using cocaine. I, I know that I used to be promiscuous, but, but God saved me and healed me and delivered me from that. So to prove it, I'm going to go into this bar. And, and I'm going to prove that I'm over this. That's engaging evil, and that is foolishness at its height. If God's delivered you from something, it doesn't mean that you go have a conversation with it. David took down Goliath. He slung the stone, and the giant fell. David could have started singing and dancing, dancing and shouting the victory, but he didn't do that. He took the sword and cut its head off. Because to... Walk away, to turn away from evil means to turn off and it also means to behead. And it's the same word that's used of David's beheading of the giant. He did not give evil an opportunity to have any impact in his life. It means to do an about face, to turn off, to behead, to do an about face. When you see evil, do not engage it. Do not have a conversation with it. Do not try to negotiate peace with it. When you see evil, do an about face and walk away from it. Can I just get on a soapbox for a moment? Well, I got the microphone. I can do what I want to do. 
why are we filling our minds with the garbage of primetime television? Why are we sitting for hours and allowing the lies and the deceptions and the filth of Hollywood to penetrate our minds? That is not beheading evil. I tell you, one of the greatest things that we can do is change the channel. One of the greatest things that we can do is determine in our hearts if they defile the name of Jesus and they're presenting things that are contrary to the laws and the ways of God. I'm going to watch something else. I'm going to do something else. Let the Holy Spirit convict you. There are three particular things that I used to watch on a regular basis. And as I started to spend some time with the Lord, he convicted me that those things were not right and that I needed to just stop it. And so there are three things I'm not watching anymore, and I'm open to the possibility of him dealing with me about even more things. But church, we want revival. We want God to come and move in power. We want God to come and transform our lives. We want to see healing and deliverance and people filled with the Holy Spirit and people saved, and yet we can't even decide to not watch the filth that's on television. We want all the benefits of God, but we don't want the holiness that comes with it. We want all the things that God has to offer, all the gifts of God and the presence of God, but we don't want the government of God that comes with it. And I'm telling you that the government and the, and the holiness of God precedes the gifts and the glory. That until we know his government until we allow his holiness to begin to be activated in our life, then we will not know the fullness of the gifts nor the fullness of his glorious presence. I'm hungry for him. I'm so hungry for him that I'm willing to do without some of the garbage in order to increase my appetite for him. Oh, you guys are so quiet tonight. I'm either completely missing this or I'm hitting it so right on. <laughs> Oh, you're thinking, oh, good. Thinking's good. Thinking's good. So he turns away from evil, sore. He turns it off. He declines it. He beheads it. He does an about face. Do you know that one of the great indictments against the 21st century church is that we sit passively waiting for God to do things for us when he's looking for a people that will get up and take action? Turning away from evil is not a passive expression. It's a verb, meaning that it's a, it's a phrase of action. Turning away from evil means you've got to do something. You can't be walking toward evil and go, Oh, God, I see evil. Deliver me from evil. No, 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 no. Deliver you from evil means, God, give me the grace to turn around and walk away from it. I know that's hard. I have to do it in my life, too. It's like, I know I need to lose weight, and one of the things I've got to do is stop buying potato chips. Not on any diet I know of. Not the weight loss kind anyways. So why do I always walk by the potato chip aisle looking at those sour cream and onion chips? I mean, seriously, if I want to lose weight and I'm serious, I'm going to have to go down another aisle. The broccoli and lettuce aisle. <laughs> but, but, but think about this in a spiritual perspective. You want all the benefits of God's presence, of his glory, and of his holiness. 
but there has to be some intentional choices that we make in order to become candidates for that presence and that holiness. And that means that we have to turn away from evil, and that requires action on our part. And turning away from evil might also mean that you have to say no to some friends. It means that you may have to stop hanging out with some of the people you've been hanging out with. It means some of the things that you've compromised on, maybe you can't compromise on them anymore. I talked with a young person just this week, and she said some things have happened, and because I did what was right, I don't have friends anymore. And my response to her was, if they ditched you because you did what was right, they were never your friends to start with. And God has something better for you than that. I have friends that have lasted me for a lifetime, and they're men and women who walk with Jesus and have never turned away from me because I did what was right, but encouraged and supported me as best they could. He was a man that was blameless. He was a man that was upright. He was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. This was a great guy. This is what God has to say about him. This is not Job's declaration of himself. This is God's declaration of Job. This is what Job has. And what he has is directly connected to who he is. He has seven sons and three daughters. He's got a great family. He has sons that's going to carry on his name, sons who are going to inherit what he leaves behind. He has daughters to bring joy to his heart. He has daughters that will bring even more sons into his family when they get married. He has a great family, seven sons and three daughters. He has massive cattle and livestock. He has sheep. He has donkeys. He has oxen and he has camels and he has men and women servants. This guy is wealthy. He's amazing. He watches over his children. He knows, I mean, okay, if you're a parent, his sons and his daughters like each other, you know what a blessing that is. When your adult children have a good relationship with each other, that is a blessing from the Lord because a lot of siblings do not. But his sons and his daughters, the brothers and the sisters, they get along with each other. And when the sons throw a party, they do not leave their sisters out. They invite their sisters and bring their sisters in on the party. And they all get together because they enjoy being together. And Job says to himself, I will make sacrifice for them. Just in case, while they were having so much fun, they accidentally, inadvertently said something they shouldn't have said or did something they should not have done. This is a vigilant father. He's not just watching over his livestock. He's watching over the souls of his children. This would be a great Father's Day message for some guy who would want to preach it. But this is a... <laughs> This is a man who cares about his children and watches over them and constantly brings them before the Lord. Father, do not forget my sons. If they've done something they should not have done, if there's been a misstep in their lives, forgive them, Lord. Watch over my daughters. Protect their purity, Lord God. Keep them as daughters of virginity until you find an appointed husband for them. Keep them, Lord God, in your care and let no harm come to them. This is a man that prays and watches over his children. Now, I know that traditionally we have made that the mother's role. But that is just as much the father's role, and Job plays that out. He is a man who vigilantly prays over, watches over, and takes care of his children and makes certain that not just their physical needs are met. Listen to me. 
He doesn't buy them just the PlayStations 4 and the four-wheelers and make sure that they live in a cool house and have a car when they turn 16. This is a man that not only meets their basic physical needs, but watches over their spiritual needs. And the spiritual needs take preeminence over the other needs, as, as indicated by this passage. So he watches over his children. He is involved in their lives, and he stands before the Lord responsible for their decisions and choices. In the first five verses of the book of Job, we have a picture painted for us of a man who has everything. He has faith, integrity, he has finances, and he has family. He is a man who has it all, and he's in a right relationship with God. The scene changes with verse 6. We find, instead of the scene being the land of us, we find the scene being the courtroom of God. And we find the sons of God presenting themselves to God, and Satan's right there with him. Now, we could ask all kinds of theological questions like, why is Satan presenting himself with the sons of God because he's all fallen and stuff? We're not going to address that because that's a whole series all by itself. But here in Job is one of four times in all of Scripture where Satan speaks. And I want us to look at the four times that he speaks because when he speaks, we find something about his character, something about his practices and his tactics, something that can help us be aware of when he's trying to do something in our lives and get away with it. The first time he speaks is in Genesis chapter 3. We find Eve and Adam, much like Job, they are in this pristine condition. They have everything. I mean, Adam and Eve really had everything. And here comes Satan. And there's Eve. And he says to her, have you thought about eating this fruit? And she says, oh, I've been told that I can eat from all the fruit in the garden, but I can't even touch this fruit because in the day that I eat thereof, I will surely die. And Satan says to her, surely you won't die. Did God really say that? Listen to the question and the doubt. Listen to the planting of suspicion in the mind of Eve. Did God say, have you ever had God drop a word in your heart? And then just moments after he quickens a word in your heart, you hear that little whisper, did God really say? Do you really believe that God would use you to do that? Do you remember what you were just doing yesterday? Do you really think God wants you to do something that amazing? Do you really think God has plans that big for you? I don't know about you, but I hear that pretty often. Did God say? And then he goes on to say, surely you won't die. He's not denying the word of God. He's now discounting it. Surely you won't die. And now he's going to twist her even further. And he's going to say, God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like him. God's cheating you out of something. These laws of God and these mandates that God has on your life, no sex before marriage, faithfulness in a marriage, no partying and no stealing and no squandering and no this and no that. God's just trying to cheat you out of a good time. God knows that if you do that, you'll have so much fun and you'll have control of your own life. Don't you want control of your own life? 
Wouldn't you like to be the master and commander of your own ship? Wouldn't you like to be in charge? Have you ever heard that? I'm sure you have. It's a part of our human condition. It is an age-old tactic and plan of the enemy, and it's worked so well for him since the beginning of time, he's not even changed it one bit. That's Genesis chapter 3. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Well, surely Job only serves God because I can't touch anything, and let me have his checking account. Let me take his possessions. Let me take away some of those things that you've built a hedge around and he'll curse you to your face. Bringing doubt and suspicion and accusations before the father against his servant Job. Flip through a few more books. The book of Zechariah, the third chapter. And here in the book of Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest in a vision, is standing before the Lord, and he has on filthy garments. And Satan doesn't speak, but he's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. And while, he, while he, none of his words are recorded, we know that he is bringing accusations before the Father against the high priest Joshua. And this is how God deals with Satan's accusations. Is, is Joshua filthy? Absolutely. Is he qualified to be a priest? Not within his own rights. Of course not. But this is what God says. Bring him clean garments. Take that filthy mess out of the way and put a clean miter on his head. He takes that which is filthy and he makes it clean. Do you know that Satan stands before the Father making accusations against me and you? And you know what the Father says? What? Marty? Filthy? All I see is the blood of my son. What? Janie? A mess? I don't think so. All I see is the blood of my son. Zach? You, you think Zach's got a filthy turban? Of course he doesn't. All I see is the blood of my son. When God looks at us because of what we have in Christ Jesus, he, doesn't, he does not see the filth that we were. He sees the holiness and the righteousness of his own son and the completed work of Calvary in our lives. The accusations of Satan where we're concerned have been muted and not just muted, but have been completely silenced. Fast forward a little bit more to the fourth chapter of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus has been baptized by John in the Jordan River. And coming up out of the water, the Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. The heavens roll back and the Father booms out. Some said it thundered. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy and to fast for 40 days. And first thing out of Satan's mouth in Luke chapter 4 verse 3 is, If you are the Son of God. What was the last word of the Father? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does Satan say? If you are the Son of God. Church, listen to me. His tactics have not changed. Not one bit. He will still try to tell you that you do not qualify because of something you used to be or something that you've done in the past or maybe something you did this morning. But the truth of the matter is, because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, those things are canceled because of the blood of Jesus Christ. If we are the sons and daughters of God, we are the sons and daughters of God. 
So many of you sitting in this room right now, the call and the gifting of God is upon your life. But you are neutralized because you can't get past if you are. And after tonight, you are without excuse because I declare over your life in the strong name of Jesus, you are the called of God. You are the anointed of God in Christ Jesus. You have been set apart for his glory and for his pleasure. Stop chasing your tail with the lies of the devil. If the if you are has neutralized you, let it do so no more. Because the truth is dispelling that lie tonight in Jesus' name. This is what we learn about Satan in this first chapter of Job. He cannot touch the servant of God without the permission of God. That's why we can declare Romans 8, 28, All things work together for the good of those who are called in Christ Jesus. We can declare that because we know that nothing comes into our life without the permission of God. And if God permits or grants permission for these things to come into our life, if we will let them have their perfect work, we will look on the other side of that and say, look at what the Lord has done. We find that God is sovereign. He is in control. There is no battle between God and Satan. There never has been. There never will be. Satan rebelled and God said, out now and out he went. There was no battle. The battle is between my flesh and the enemy. That is a battle as long as I allow it to be. But there is no battle between God and Satan. They're not in some dead heat struggle and we're not sure who's going to win. Jesus has overcome. When he declared from the cross, it is finished. That battle was sealed in my life and in yours. We know that he's an accuser. We've looked for Satan and the things propagated by Hollywood like Rosemary's Baby and garbage like that. But I tell you, Satan is most deceptive and most at work when he uses me and you to bring accusations against other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not spinning heads and green projectiles coming from someone's mouth that we have to be afraid of. The greatest evil that lurks among us is the accusations that we bring against the body of Christ. The accusations that we bring against the men and women of God. The accusations that husbands bring against their wives and wives bring against their husbands. When you become an accuser of the brethren, then you join your voice in symphony with that of Satan himself. Now, I know those are strong, awful words, but I believe them to be the truth. He is the accuser of the brethren, and when you begin to start singing those same accusations, then you join your voice in symphony with his. He creates doubt, doubt about who God is, doubt about the integrity of God's word, and doubt about God's call upon your life. God is in control at all times, and Satan's being used by by him to accomplish his own plans and purposes. I'm going to stop there because that's a lot. (laughs) The point, in fact, is this. Suffering comes, whether we like it or not. 
Suffering comes without our vote. If you live long enough, breathe in and out long enough, things will happen in your life that will break your heart and shake your world. But how we respond to that suffering will give indication as to our level of spirituality. Suffering doesn't make you. It just reveals what's already in you. Someone can't say suffering made me bitter. No, baby, you were bitter and the suffering just brought it to the surface. You can't say suffering made me fearful. No, honey, you were fearful to start with and the suffering just flushed it to the surface. If there's any one thing that's been missing for the last 20 years as far as teaching in the body of Christ, it's been on things like human suffering. We've tried to create doctrines and ideas that say if we do it right and say it right and walk right and live right, then we won't suffer. But the book of Job is point in fact that the righteous do suffer. And the whole push and thrust behind the book of Job is that we respond like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. If you're suffering in this place tonight, if you've experienced loss, if you're being shaken, if things are going crazy in your life, know this, God's not taken by surprise. He knows all about it. If the enemy's bringing accusations against you, trying to create doubt in your heart about who you are, trying to tell you that you've messed up so bad and moved away from him so far that you can never come back, he's a liar. And the truth of the matter is this. Jesus has his hand on your life. And the calling of God and the giftings of God on your life are still alive and well. And the enemy is a liar. And you need to expose him as such. So the next time he comes to you and, say, and says something like, Did God really say you were going to do that? Do you really think that God could use you? Do you really think that God even wants to do something? You're just, you're just lucky to be saved. God has more for you than you could ever imagine. And there's no sin too big. And there's no mistake so great that his blood, that his grace, that his redemption cannot reach you. The book of Job, while it's certainly about a book of suffering, it is a book about worship and celebration. It's a book that reminds us that he's bigger than all my problems, bigger than all my cares, bigger than all my needs, and bigger than all my questions, bigger than anything that I can or cannot see. God's bigger than all these things, and he has it all right here in the palm of his hand. And I can go boldly and confidently into tomorrow because I know who holds my hand, and I know who holds me. So, Lord Jesus... We ask you, by the grace and power, the name of Jesus, you keep us mindful of who you are. You keep us aware of your great grace at work in our lives. And Father, for any son or daughter in this house tonight, the enemies lied to them. I ask that you would allow truth to permeate and that the truth would set them free tonight. And that they'd leave this place saying, yes, Lord. Be it unto me according to your word and according to your plan. Father, for those who are suffering, 
Would you do what only you can do and comfort them with your presence? For it's in the excellent name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.